I'd like for you to open your Bible briefly to Isaiah 61, and then I will read from Colossians chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 61, this was the text, as we said last week, of the first sermon that Jesus preached in the Bible. And it says in verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. They're usually the only ones that receive this. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. The last three things mentioned there has to do with a bound and captive people. People who were in prison. They got used to being in prison. They got used to being bound. They didn't know they were bound, didn't know they were in prison. I'm thinking about my ancestors now, my family tree. They didn't know there was any unusual things in their life about this. They didn't know anything about really being free or liberated. So they learned to live bound, like most people do. They learn to just put up with, not do much about. They don't understand spiritual warfare, so they don't fight back. They don't know how to resist. They don't even know they're bound. They just think that life throws curveballs at some people, and some people get it, and some people don't. And yet we read in the Bible that Jesus came. One of the specific things he came to do was to set the captives free, which is what we were. We were captive. We were bound. In Colossians chapter 1, in verse 13, he said, speaking of Jesus, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us in the kingdom of his dear son, or the son of his love. And then in verse 14, he says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, if we put these things together, we realize that the thing that binds us the thing that bound us and that which keeps us bound and captive is what the Bible calls sin. We dealt with that for quite a while last week. Sin. Sin is that work of the devil that turns you away from God to something else. Sin. It's a transgression. It's a turning away from the Lord. And it's something that in the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 4 and verse 7, as we've referred to a lot, the Bible says, for all of us, not some of us, but for all of us, sin lieth at the door. You were scheduled by God in this life to do well, because you can. It is possible. And that verse says, if you do well, it'll be all right. But he said, if you do not well, if you're not doing well, if you're not living on the level that God has revealed to you, he wants you to live, it's because sin lies at the door, and he said, its desire is for you. So sin is a something which is a seeking something. It is a something sinister, as we call it, which is seeking victims. So there is a personality to sin. Because it says it lies at the door and its desire is for you. And one thing that must be identified in every Christian's life is what sin is and how easily you can fall into it. 
Our message is called Living Liberated. We should live liberated because according to Colossians 1, 13 and 14, we have been. It's not like we could be or should be or might be. He said we have been. He hath redeemed us. We have been purchased back. A price has been paid. A ransom has been paid. We have been legally bought back and rescued from the sentence of death and brought back to God as his purchased possession. Now, whether or not we ever know that and live like that is another matter. You can. Everybody in this room, if you're a Christian, you can live a truly liberated, free life. You can not without the things in this world coming against you, fighting against you. The devil's always going to aim his weapons at you. But you do not have to be captured anymore. Remember Romans 6, 14, sin shall not have dominion over you. It can. And it usually does with most people because they don't know any better. And my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. It's not a comfortable thing to preach in churches. People don't come whatever distance they came to hear a message about sin. They just don't like it. It doesn't really make me feel better. So when you begin to rule out your need to hear certain things, certain things very cleverly come into your life. Very subtly they come into your life, and the next thing you know, you get snared. But you don't know it because you look around, everybody's snared some way or another, and you never get free. And we live fighting and fussing and fuming and complaining and criticizing and backbiting and throwing fits. And we talk about this and we're grumbling about that because of sin. No man should do that. We shouldn't live like that because the Bible says we shouldn't. We've been liberated. But you've got to live a liberated life because, again, Jesus has liberated us. Listen to these words concerning sin that Paul wrote in Romans 6 and verse 16 because it has to do with how we live and the choices we're making. He said, Know ye not that to whom you yield yourself servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. See, the Bible even puts here a gender on sin, calls it a his. Do you see that? So there is a personality that we call sin. It's the devil. The only way the devil can control anybody is through sin. We are made with senses, and those are the avenues that he comes through. Those are the way his temptations come. He appeals to your feelings and appeals to your senses. Your body experiences all kinds of things in this world, and it's just a house that functions on the behalf of the signal sent to it. And the devil is always trying to tell you what you could have and the way it could be, and you should be free, and you begin to use your body as a sinful thing. You can't really, in Romans 12, you can't offer it without spot unto God because you really enjoy what you're sitting in. See, there are sins that have an appeal to flesh, to human flesh. Some people don't want to give up their sin. They don't want to even be told that what they're doing is sin because they like it. They've convinced themselves that I can't get away from this. I can't quit pot. I can't quit rock. I can't quit smoking. Whatever the thing is, they're convinced I cannot. 
And therefore, somehow that excuse is okay for you to dabble in it some more. But you get bound in sin. And your life begins to deteriorate spiritually. Until one day you're only sitting in a pew and and what goes in one ear goes out the other. And if Jesus knocked on the door, there'd be nobody home because there's nothing there anymore. That's what sin does to it. It's a killer. Remember we read in James chapter 1, when sin has conceived... See, it starts as an idea, a thought, a direction, or a feeling, a desire. And we are told we're supposed to bring these thoughts captive to Christ and evaluate it in terms of what he says is right or wrong and kick it out if it's not right. But if we don't know to do that, we don't. We just dwell on it. And all these kind of thoughts and things come into your life you got to deal with it. You just have to deal with it. And if you don't, you're controlled by sin. We wonder about you, how you can sit there for so many years. I'm not talking about anybody. How you can sit there, go to church your whole life, and never get it. How you can read your Bible, as you say, or go to all those Bible studies, listen to all those programs or tapes and all those little manuals you fill out, and yet your life is still... A disappointment. How can it be? It's cause of sin. There are things in our lives we just don't want to get rid of. There are things in our life we really don't mind serving. For some people, it's just criticism. They can't stop. They listen to critical programs. They fill themselves with all the talk shows that are constantly spewing out criticism. It's not that you disagree with the accuracy of what they're saying. It's just that the fact that it's not given to us to do that. There's a verse in the Bible that says, He that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And knowing that, we do it anyway. So, as I said last week, I didn't mean to take this long to say this, this week. Sin is so easy to creep into your life, to be a roommate or a a pal of yours, or something that that comes from other people that you run with and it kind of captures you too, and it makes you like them. But just remember, Paul said, Whoever you serve, you're a servant to that. He said, whomever you yield yourself as servants to obey, whom? It's a personality. It's a something, somebody. Whom you yield yourself servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But the choice is ours. And how many times have we heard we live by choices? We make the choices. And that little sin again has conceived, it begins to come forth. And when it does come forth, it produces, in James 1, it produces death. You die. You may be alive with your eyes open. But like Paul said to so many, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Death. Living and alive, biologically functioning, doing well, happy smile on your face, making money, going places but you're dead. You have no life from God, and therefore you cannot be liberated. So the question sometimes comes up, I mentioned last week, then if we are liberated in Colossians 1, 13, 14, or Ephesians 1, 7, then how is it that if we're liberated that we can be bound again? Well, how many times, how many verses, how often does the Bible warn us 
about the way we live. If the way we live cannot damage us, then why warn us? Like the Bible says, in the latter days, some shall depart from the faith. How's that possible? Well, they will give heed by their will. By this appeal of something on the inside of them that's never been crucified, they will cave into something. They will give heed to seducing spirits. I don't like that kind of talk. Well, it's in there anyway. They will give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines or teachings of demons. It'll sound good and it'll look good. And I tell you, if you were to watch the flashiest TV programs with all the specially selected speakers and stuff today, if you weren't careful, if you weren't well-versed in some way, you could believe all of them because they all have a convincing story. They all have such a realistic approach, such a realistic story. And I'm not saying they're all wrong. I'm just saying that they can't all be right because sometimes they don't agree with each other. Or they give these glowing examples of this or testimonies about that. There was a time in my life I would go, whoa. But after 40 years of seeing so much of that turn into something else, maybe I'm cautious. I don't want to be critical because all these people might be telling something there that is right on target. On the other hand, I would rather be a Berean. I would rather search the scriptures to see if this all lines up with the scripture. If somebody said, well, you're legalistic, then let me be. I do not want to be snared in these last days by being spiritually gullible. I don't want to accept something because some man of renown said it. I want to be guilty of going to the scripture and checking out the word to see if it's right. Because I know the devil goes about like a roaring lion, especially in churches, especially hyper-spiritual churches where they really, woo! And he goes about looking for somebody who can be motivated to do something wrong or to think wrong or to go a different direction or to believe whatever they hear. We don't want to be like those people that are ever learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth. So last time we began with one of the ways that having been liberated, we are recaptured is through our thinking through our thinking. Such a small thing. How can this be? Well, didn't Jesus set us free? Didn't he do a work once and for all at the cross, which is judicially sufficient to save whoever will believe? Whoever will believe what he did at the cross for us is sufficient to save us all. But not everybody will come, but to those who do and who partake of his finished work at the cross and they believe him and they surrender to him, all their sins are loose from them, aren't they? And they're set free. I mean, you're cleansed. But does that mean that because you came to Christ, you're just going to do right? Does that mean you're going to walk out the door and live a holy life, period? You can. That potential is there to do that. You can do this. You can do it. There's a lot of opposition to it in the world, but you can live this life. You can live it. Not because I said it, but because the Bible says it. But you've got to be aware. Christians must realize 
that the devil never quits trying to take back what Jesus bought. He is constantly trying to get back in where he once ruled. He's not convinced that we believe all the things we say we believe. God knows if we believe it or not. And we'll be tempted to find out and tested to find out if we really do believe it. You'll find out too. But the devil is always going around looking to gain back all those people that he once controlled. And look how successful he's been. Not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom, but who does? He that doeth the will of my Father who is in heaven. And what kind of teaching has come along and says, we don't have to do anything. Well, then what did Jesus mean? Not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom, but he that doeth the will of my Father. He said, who is my mother, my father, my brother, my children, or my family? He says, he that doeth the will of God. The whole mind is renewed so that we can know the will of God. Because that's the only right direction to go. And it's interesting that it begins with your mind, with your thinking. How did the first sin come into the world? The first sin came into the world in our first original ancestral pair that started creation, Adam and Eve. And the devil approached Eve. And he said, hath God said. Why would the devil still do that today? And he does. You hear a sermon. And what happens when the devil begins to tap on your shoulder? Now, that's not right. Now, how do you know? That's not what it, that's his opinion. If it was my opinion, you're still required to search the scripture for yourself to see what's right. To chew the meat and spit out the bones. But Eve, come on. Would you just briefly look in 2 Corinthians 11? He said, Eve, come on. Hath God really said that? Do you really think he's going to destroy you? Do you really think that because you eat of a simple fruit that you're going to die? And then the question, like, what kind of God are you serving? This intimidating, embarrassing thought and idea, or your friends that you say that to, well, what kind of church is that? What kind of God is that? You mean to tell me that if you just do it, then you're going to hell, I guess. See, trying to make everything so that you're embarrassed or intimidated or somewhat ashamed of what you believe. Or you feel guilty because you can't explain yourself well and therefore you kind of cower down to that. First of all, you run around the wrong people. Look here at 2 Corinthians 11. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, he said that your minds, do you see that? That your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Christianity does not have to be a complicated subject. Listen, God did not save complicated people. God did not bring ultra high IQ theologically minded people to him. The people that God saved in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 were the base and the foolish and the despised. Hello. 
Not people who were mentally advanced. Some are, of course. Of course. He just says not many that were outstanding. Some are. Paul was. But he chose people like us. We're not complicated. I'm not. I am not a complicated person. I like things simple. I like to explain it simple. I like to keep it simple. Because it is. The whole redemptive story is a portrayal of the love of God for lost peoples and how a loving God provided a way for the lost to be saved. And the offer is made to the lost when that price was paid that you may come and partake of him and be unto me as he was unto me, as my beloved. It's simple. Look at the words that God chooses. Faith, believe. How many syllables? If you don't live in Kentucky, how many syllables? <laughs> it's faith. Believe. What was the difficult word that Jesus said to Peter before he got out of the boat? What was that theological word he used? Come. Everything is simple. Everything is plain. We don't need to complicate it. We don't need to add to it. We don't need to have some special, unique twist to scriptures for some notoriety somewhere. Just keep it simple. Make it easy to understand. So I said, well, you're not very deep. Deep enough to get you to heaven and deep enough to know what I believe and in whom I have believed. And if you go deeper than that, you just really got to heaven. <laughs> I just really, really, really got to heaven because I'm so deep. I just, woo, I got there. Well, you get there, you got there. This message has such potency and power. Remember in 1 Timothy chapter 4, the end of that chapter, Paul said to Timothy, read the word, study the word, exhort and long-suffering and all that. He said, for as long as you do this, you will not only save yourself, but all those who hear you. And how the devil wants us to, well, don't be just normal. Have a revelation that nobody's ever heard of. Bring an angle into the kingdom that nobody's ever seen, so now you can write your book. Don't just stand there and make a simple message simple and then say, now you can go home. Function. Do something in the gifts. Well, I'd like to do that. I'd like to do that. Bonnie and I were talking about that over the weekend. I used to try that. I used to try to function. Because in those days, you know, if you preach the word, you're supposed to be in some mode or zone where you can now start healing people. Well, I laid hands on them. The problem was they were much different. Prophesying to people, everybody used to do that. You can get most of that right, too. You know, you have a mind, you got shoes on your feet. You can do a lot of things that you can get it right. But a couple of times I got it really wrong. Really wrong. And I remember in repenting a long time ago, I said, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to try to be what people want you to be. I am going to be what I am. And that's all I am. And that's all I want to be. All the big extravagant stuff, you can have it. God bless you with it. I'll stick to Shelbyville in this cathedral of yesterday. Because <laughs> God meets us here. Amen. And life cannot be better than being where he is. Amen. 
It just can't be. If I had my druthers, we would be in some nicer place. But that's coming too. But remember this. In all the things that we're talking here about Eve and the word. Eve was open to rethinking what God said. Christians are like that. There's so many people that I know who were very well taught, but who have since, in the last 15 or 20 years, have re rethought, rethunk all the things that they had heard, and they begin to change what was true into something that's not true. And sin came in in that way. Most of them have fallen away. They can't even carry on a good conversation about spiritual things anymore because, well, they gone beyond it, I guess. But your mind, this is where you think. God gave us all a mind. The mind is probably that part of us that the Bible refers to as the soul. Because the soul is the seat of your affections. Where your choices are made is in the realm of the soul. And so much of what we do depends on what we're thinking about because what Proverbs 18, 21 said, as a man thinketh in his heart or within himself or in this area that we're talking about. As a man thinketh, so is he. That's a scriptural law that will never change. That will be true with anybody, whoever, as long as this earth is functioning the way it is. Whatever you're given to thinking about is going to be seen in the choices you make, the places you go, how you act, your conduct, behavior. Everything will come forth from what's in your heart and what you're thinking. In fact, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus mentioned a whole lot of people that will never go to heaven because of the things that are in their heart or this realm of their life, this soulish part. Fornication and all of that. The TV magnifies that and promotes it. The educational system of America promotes it. You're urged to do it. Your children are. They can give you things at school in that area that they don't have to ask parents, but you know, if you take your tonsils out, they have to ask you. You're living in an age in which kids are giving things to think about and their parents are giving things to think about as does cause you in a very subtle way to rethink what you've heard is right and wrong from the church. Did he really say it that way? And we begin giving ourselves liberties. And the more we do, it's because in our minds, we're convincing ourselves that these things are not so bad. It's not that bad at all. If we don't have a sound mind, if we don't have a renewed mind, if what we're doing here today is not a part of that process of renewing our minds, then we will remain as we were, and the sin that lieth at the door will come back and regreet himself to you and take possession once again. And you will have walked, as I've said before, you will have walked a 20-mile circle. 20 miles is a pretty good walk. It's like walking from here to Frankfort, Kentucky. If you took one straight line or a path and you made it 20 miles long but made it a circle, it looks straight. I mean, when you're walking here, you can look 100 yards ahead, and if it bends at all, it bends barely. Because it's 20 miles. A circle this little, it, well, it's obvious that you're walking in a circle. But when it's a great big circle in 20 years of your life, 
and you start here and you're commanded and compelled by the Spirit and commanded by God to walk in these things and to do this and pay attention and keep a hand on plow and so forth. And what does the devil do as you begin to walk this way? He begins to approach your mind just as he did Eve. The same book you're in, 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, he says that we're not ignorant of his devices. This is what the devil does. He gives you things to think about. You don't need this. You don't need to be here. I don't have to go all the time. I'm not going to hell because I don't go to church. And say it like that so that gives you liberties that you shouldn't have. You keep letting that thing talk to you like that. Next thing you know, you become the master of your own destiny. You figured out how you're going in, and you figured out that God's going to save you anyway. You can't fall away anyway. You're not living all right, but that doesn't matter. I've been redeemed. And you get all warped in your thinking. And it comes out of your mouth. And you begin to see yourself in a way that's not good. Remember the warning in Proverbs 4 and the blessing? My son, give attention to my word. Incline your ear. Unto my sayings, let them not depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart, where you think, for they are life to those that find them, and they are health or medicine to all their flesh. The choice is ours, but I'll say it again. The choices that we make today largely depend on what we're thinking. You won't choose what you don't believe any more than you'll follow somebody you don't know. You'll never desire to do right if you're not convinced it is right. And your mind is the place where your new information comes. The renewing of your mind is absolutely essential. You must. If you want to walk with the Lord and enjoy all the benefits that he has and so forth. And remember, before we go to our next point, I could talk about this for the rest of the week because this is where we live. When it comes to thoughts and thinking and the power of the enemy to control us through our thinking or our children, look at what they listen to at school and who they listen to and all the angles that are presented to them and all the liberties that they're told they can have. Look at that. Remember this. The weapons of our warfare, and we're in a war. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. What do you mean? Casting down imaginations. We get image from imagination because image is a picture, something formed in the mind, a way you see things. The eyes of your heart see things. The way you see things in your mind, the way you figure things out, is going to determine whether or not you do that. A choice you make. But he said, bringing into captivity every thought to what? The obedience of Christ. But what if he's not there? What do you do? What if you go to church, you join a Christian group, and you've been baptized and whatever you do, but your life is not about Jesus? Your life is about you and improving yourself and getting ahead in life and having an advantage and so forth. What if your life is really not about Jesus? 
What if your light is shining, but it does not reflect the importance of Jesus Christ in your life? Then what do you bring your thoughts to? If he's not a living force in our lives, then we capture these thoughts or these imaginations. To whom do we bring them to defeat them? We can't. We just cry. And, I don't know why I can't. I just do so. And we go through that once every three months. I just God, I don't know. I need more prayer. We just keep going through that for the rest of our lives. Until one day your heart gets hardened and you quit doing it. Then nothing bothers you anymore. I could not stand here for three more hours and overemphasize the importance of a living Jesus Christ in your life. Somebody whom the focus is on, somebody you look to, somebody you measure what you're doing by, where you're going by, what you're thinking, what you're watching, what you're wearing, the way you look. He should be the one you seek to get the approval of anything. But if you can't bring every thought captive to Christ, it might be because you don't want to or because there's no Christ there. Now, how sad that would be to learn religious cliches and learn religious language and be saved by a stranger. Somebody you don't know. Heard about him. Like I said, my brother was a baseball pitcher. And when he was alive, I went to Yankee Stadium once. And I met a lot of people whose stories I could tell you about. Does that mean I know them? I met them. And I don't know them like I would know them. I couldn't tell you much about their life and how they act or how they eat or what they like. I just shook their hands once. I don't know them. I think a lot of people are like that with Jesus. They've heard a lot of stories about him. They're familiar with the biblical stories. The water to wine, the stone rolled away, walking on the water, the resurrection. But they don't know him. Because when he's a force in your life, Everything revolves around him, and if something is given you to do that isn't right, you'll bring that thought captive to Christ because it's the enemy that's trying to gain back the ground he lost. You've got to guard your minds. Secondly, in being liberated, if you want to stay liberated, you're going to have to guard your mouth. You have to guard the door of your lips. You're going to have to watch what you say as well as how you say it. Is it not true you can say the right thing the wrong way? How many times have little children said to each other the right thing the wrong way? I'm sorry. You sound like you are. In one sense, you are. But... Proverbs 6, 2, you're familiar with this. He said, thou art snared by the words of your mouth. You are snared by the words of your mouth. Who spoke those words? You did. What inspired you to say words that snared you? Sin, the devil. Well, then could we say this, that God has given us a lot of things that are right to say 
and warns us about a lot more things that we should not say. That there are things that God speaks about that we should say. A lot of things are right, and we'll look at some of them. And then he warns us about things that we shouldn't say, like gossip, backbiting, how about idle words, and so forth. Things of that sort. Proverbs also says this, Proverbs 13 said, He that keepeth his tongue keepeth his life. You think about that. Could it be your life? Could depend on what comes out of your mouth? Like if I got snared by the words of my mouth, then I need to work on being unsnared. What if I stay snared? Am I any use to God? Probably not. I don't know all the details about that. There could be things there that I don't know, but it doesn't appear that that would be a good thing. Proverbs 21 and verse 23 said, Whoso keepeth his mouth and his tongue keepeth his soul from troubles. So it appears briefly here that the words that I'm choosing to speak will largely determine if God blesses what I said and... I continue in liberty and freedom, and the devil can't touch me. Or if I don't guard my mouth and I don't guard my tongue, trouble could come upon me because I've opened the door to the devil. Now, is it possible for a Christian to give place to the devil? Do you have scripture for it? Ephesians 4.27, you're welcome. Yes. So if I can give place to the devil, and Proverbs says at least three times that I can keep my soul from troubles and I can keep myself from difficulty by the words that I speak, then the devil is probably trying to continually prompt you to say things that he's going to use to gain interest back into your life. Is that possible? Well, then can words set us free and can words destroy us? Well, turn to Proverbs then. I know you're wanting to real bad, so go ahead and turn to Proverbs 18 and verse 21. I'm sure you know this. I'm sure you're familiar with this also. It says two opposites here. One is good, one is bad. Proverbs 18, verse 21, he says, death... Or life is in the power of the tongue. Whose tongue? Anybody's got one. How many of y'all have a tongue? Five. Five people. The rest of you can't sin. <laughs> Woe unto five of us. But he says death or life is in the power of the tongue. If I'm not careful then, I will give liberties to my speech. Well, I'm a Christian, I'm all right. And I will give liberties to myself to say a lot of things that God will not honor, that God did not author. So I can discuss matters that I should not discuss. Is that right? We can talk about other people's affairs when we should not. Can we do that? That's called gossip. Is it still wrong? We can be critical of people we should not be critical of because God never taught us, trained us, or gave us the freedom to be critical. 
He never told us to backbite, but we do it all the time in spite of what he said. And by the words that we choose to speak, something prompted us to say it. How many people complain all this? Always complaining about something. Something's not right. Something's not fair. I don't know. That's what God gave you to say. You're supposed to talk like that if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you ought to grumble. You ought to complain. March and strike and write letters. That's how we glorify God. Now, if you're listening to this tape and you just got in right here, that's not what I mean. <laughs> we did that our whole life. We learned how to do that. I did from my parents. My daddy was always talking about politicians. He gave them names. Am I going to use them? Ought to lock them all up for six months because they're all a bunch, you know. And well, I've learned that. That's my dad. So I said it myself. He grew up. I'll tell you what I said. Every time I go to church, thou must refrain thy tongue from speaking evil. All right, amen. I was I'm glad do it. Who prompts us to talk like that? Where did the idea come from that I am free to talk like that? Who said I could? That's why we got bound, and that was the fruit of being bound and in prison. Our mouth revealed the kind of people we were. Oh, we go to church and we sing the hymns and all of that kind of stuff, but deep on the inside, there's a bitter fountain. And while we should say only right things, because God gave us right things to say, and if we take it and honor him with it, we'll have his favor. But somebody is prompting us, like getting involved in politics. And what happens when you get involved in politics? You argue. You say your heathen is better than their heathen. And you start arguing over who's best and this and that and thus and so. Our minds have to be cleaned up and they have to be cleaned because our minds tells our tongues what to say. The lust of our minds is often expressed in saying what we want people to hear from us. That's corruption. We're really no different than we were before we got saved when we act like that. The only difference is we get convicted now, thank God for that, and we repent. And it's at least another week before we do it again. But if you stayed away from certain people who like to talk like that, you wouldn't do it. If you hung around the right people, they would checkmate you all the time until you think, well, who do you think you are? That's what Christian friends ought to do. If you see a brother overtaken in a fault, restore him. Living the Christian life, you've got to learn a new way of thinking. And then you've got to learn a new way of talking. Babies do. When babies are born, when you're born again, don't you have to learn a new language? Babies do. You ever hear one try to talk to you when they're really, really little? They go, Ugh. the, ma, and other words you learn what that means. Change a diaper. Or a scream. They can't talk. They just make noises. 
And then as they get older, they get corrected because, no, that's not how you say that. And they have to learn how to talk. Sometimes their pronunciation isn't good, but as they grow older, it gets better because they're learning how to talk a new language. And when they say things they should not say, maybe they heard Uncle John said, or they heard it from somebody, and they say something that you go, where'd you hear that? You correct them because they should not talk like that. Then why should we? They're learning a new language. You want your children to be socially acceptable. Hopefully, hopefully, when they're little, as they're learning how to talk, you also teach them how to act, how to hold the door for older people or for adults to say thank you or excuse me. That's never been a sin. God has never demoted anybody who was nice. But this is part of the training. It's just like Christians. We're being trained. Part of our training is going on right now. We're giving words to do and words to think. But a little child, you know, as they get older, they learn how to talk. And aren't you glad? I was always glad when they could tell you where they hurt with words. I was always glad when they could button buttons and tie shoes. And then Velcro came along. <laughs> words are gifts from God. The only created order that uses words is us. Why us? Because we were specifically made in the image and the likeness of God. And words are a divine gift to creation, to us in creation, for the purpose of communicating with God and ruling the world on his behalf. We could not communicate with God without words. God has words. We see the power of his words from one end of the Bible to the other. Creation was by words. Nothing that's created was created out of something that was because there was nothing. And words, God spoke words. Words became real. They had meaning. They began to materialize and manifest. Words. They still do. When Jesus told Lazarus to come out of the tomb, he used words. He didn't just power sitting there thinking, I'm going to think this thing. I'm gonna... No, he spoke a word. The fig tree began to die in Mark chapter 11 because of words. Words are vessels of communication. We are allowed to talk with each other in words. Animals can't talk. I know at least once in the Bible, for the reasons that God had, he let an animal talk. A donkey that rebuked the prophet, and the prophet didn't even know that a donkey was talking to him. Because he still beat that donkey. The donkey said, I'm trying to save your miserable life. You're beating on me like that. A donkey had to use words because we don't understand grunts and growls like the animal kingdom does. We're not animals. We're human beings. We're not apes and monkeys. DNA, VNG, AK5, whatever. We're not monkeys. They're not kin to me. I claim none of them. They're animals. 
They go, <laughs> like that's how they communicate with noises, not words. We communicate with words because God specifically gave us words. He didn't give us wrong words. He gave us right words. He gave for 1,500 years through the writing as God chose people and the Spirit of God moved their pens to write all of this. God gave us words to know who he is. We couldn't know God without words. Words are divine blessings from God. It's how we tell God that we love him. It's how we tell God we're sorry. It's how we pray. We couldn't pray without words. Not only does God reveal himself to us, but he reveals himself with words. And look at what we have done with words in history. Would you go back to the little book of James chapter 3? Look at what we've done with words. Verse 2. For in many things we offend all. Now if any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man and able to bridle the whole body. And he talks about putting bits in the horse's mouths and so forth. And how the horse or the ship is guided by that. Look in verse 6. And the tongue is a fire. A world of iniquity. Your tongue is how you form words. God gave you that. And your tongue is a fire. It's a world of iniquity. Look at that in verse 6. It defiles the whole body. Your tongue does. The words we speak defile us. And setteth on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell. People descend to that place because of words. Somewhere you shall know a man by the words he speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's the way God made it to be. And verse 7, for among every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed, he said, and has been tamed of mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. For we come to church on Sunday morning and we sing hymns and bless God and we laud him with our hands raised. And then verse 10, out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. No wonder God judges bad words, wrong words. Words, inappropriate, non-Christian, demonically inspired words. Does a fountain, verse 11, send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Let me ask you all a question before we read the rest of this. Could you have cursed somebody yesterday or had a very unclean conversation with somebody and come in here and raise your hands at that chorus that we sing, I'll lift up my hands to God. Can you do that? Can you with your tongue curse man or be vile about something or just be critical and ugly about something or be wrong with your tongue? And Can you come in here and say, great is, can you still sing? Can you still do this? It didn't stop you from singing, did it? It didn't stop you from doing this. Your heart says you ought to do this, and your heart tells you you oughtn't to have done what you did, but you do it anyway. And he said, your tongue is killing you. 
Because your heart's killing you. And your tongue is simply hooked up to the instructions and the motivations and the inspirations of your heart. And your tongue is telling all of us the kind of person you really are on the inside. You're full of religion, but you're full of death. I didn't write this, so don't look at me bad. Verse 12, can a fig tree, my brethren, bring forth olive berries, either a vine, figs? So can no fountain yield both salt water and fresh? Who is a wise man here today? Who is a wise man in this place? And who is endued with knowledge among us? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. Our lives will be determined by our words. But our words came because we were given those words to think. And while we knew better than to say a lot of things that we say with our mouth, we say it anyway. The title of this message is Living Liberated. You can't live a liberated life and have a loose tongue. You cannot. Because somebody is listening to everything we say. Doesn't it say that there is an accuser of the brethren? Somewhere in the book of Revelation. Somewhere towards the middle. Maybe chapter 12 or something. Doesn't the Bible say that there is an accuser of the brethren? Well, if we're brethren, how could he accuse us of anything? Because we're made to live by choices. He that knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him it's what? So what does the accuser of the brethren do? The accuser of the brethren walks around with one of these things. Boy, that pain in your body, that's probably... Scolipicosis, isn't it? Probably is. He says, he goes back to God. All right. Here's one of your hot shots down there in Shelby Town. List at this. It probably is. He just signed for it. He said it was his. I don't know what I'm going to do with these children. You are wearing me out. Oh, he's spoiled rotten. You hear it, Lord? They said they're spoiled rotten. That means I get in there because I'm the one that makes rotten and I'm the one that spoils. I'm going to get in this child's life as soon as I can and persuade them to do a lot of things that make their parents cry and moan. Or they get to talking about stuff you shouldn't talking about. Did you hear what some of the, what he did? Well, I'll tell you what. And here's the devil. He's got this thing right in your face. This other end is hooked up to a recorder. I can't draw one today. 30 years ago, I could draw what a recorder looked like. Today, I don't know what, just a slot today. <laughs> so I don't know how to draw a recorder. But somebody's got a recording. He's got a lot of microphones. Everybody gets one. Everywhere you go, he's got this thing stuck in your face. And as the accuser of the brethren, he puts a thought in your mind just like he did Judas. The devil, having put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Jesus. He puts the thought there. The thought begins to give birth to the event. And it will come out of the mouth. And you give place to the devil. And Christianity isn't working for you. I tried it. It didn't work. You've heard that. And the next thing you know, your mouth wraps you tighter and tighter in its bondage and in its sin. The words of your mouth have snared you. Listen to me, all of us. We get snared in this church. And I'm just referring to us as a people. I don't know about the rest of you old folks out there, wherever you are. 
but it is easy for us in our daily lives, if we're not careful, to get snared. Now, thank God for repentance. Thank God for the verse that says, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. There is an accuser of the brethren there, but there is also an advocate there. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we've got to have that there also. We've got to have that. Don't mess up and then say, oh, I'm sorry, and then go mess up again because you've got to mess up heart. And while we're vulnerable to messing up, it is not given unto us to mess up. But remember this. It was God who gave us words. And God gave us words, and he says, with these words, I will bless you. Or, with these words, you'll be snared. Now, you can speak the right words. Because whoso shall confess with their mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in the heart that God has raised him, they shall be saved. For with the mouth, remember Paul wrote this, Romans 10? For with the mouth, confession is made unto and the word confession is two words put together in the Greek, and it means literally to say the same thing. So he teaches me what I should say, and I learned the language like a little kid. I learned to say that. I learned not to say other things that aren't like that. I learned to say what he says, and when I say the same thing he says, I am in agreement with God. We're on the same page, and there's nothing that keeps his word from working right. That's how our faith comes. Faith comes how? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. These things are written, John wrote. These things are written that you who can read words that you might believe. You didn't know what to believe. These things are written. It's in your Bible. These things are written. John 20 and verse 31. These things are written that you might believe. You can read words. Words are so important that we early in our life, as I said as children, parents taught us words. What if we'd gone to school and couldn't talk? We could never learn. If we could never learn, we could never read. If we could never read, we could never really communicate. We would be like animals. But God has put in all of our hearts to learn. To learn words. To wisely choose the words that glorify him and honor him. And to avoid the words that he must judge. And the devil knows this law. And so as we begin to read and learn, our faith comes into play. Our faith begins to grow, and we know that faith is always released with words. Remember what Jesus taught, whosoever shall say to this mountain, be thou taken up and cast into the sea. But Jesus said you have to speak to the mountain like he spoke to the fig tree. You talk to your pain. You talk to disease. When you can't find things, just losing stuff. I've been through that, and you talk to that. I'm talking to somebody not sleeping well. Now, anything that's not going well, I talk to it. I embarrass people sometimes. Embarrass my kids one time. They had friends years ago when they were all young, came out the house. I was talking to my garden. <laughs> one of them asked, one of my children said, 
is your dad talking to the garden? Well, I didn't mean for them to hear it. I wouldn't do that for a show because that would be the wrong reason to do it. I'm just praying over my beans and corn and stuff. You know, I'm not a big gardener. My thumb is only half green. And I was just, in the name of Jesus, I rebuke rabbits and diseases and bugs and run in my garden and ask you to bless these tomatoes. And they said, your dad talked to gardens? My kids could have said, you don't know what all he talks to. He's all... <laughs> He talks all the time. He talks till he can't find his keys. I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. I was trained like this. This is the way my mind works. And because it works that way with a taut reliance upon God, I release that faith with words. I'm not perfect. I don't have to be perfect. I just have to be faithful. I'm not very smart. You don't have to be smart. You just have to believe. What God gives us, he gives to all of us wherever we are. Amen. Remember this as you go out of here. Use words this week that God doesn't have to judge. Use good words. If you can't speak something good, speak nothing at all. How's that? Set a watch before my mouth, O Lord, and guard the door of my heart, lest I sin against thee. Would you bow your heads? Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask that you would bless the words that we have heard today, the words that have come into our hearts today, that they would, like in a garden, be good seed that's planted in good soil. May these words take root and begin to thrive and flourish in our lives. May we truly capture our tongue, and subject it to the Word of God. May our mind be cleansed and renewed, and may sin be rooted out of our lives. We give you thanks today, Lord, for saving us. We thank you for what Jesus did for us. We thank you for what he's doing right now as he's interceding for us. We thank you that the work that he started, he's going to finish, and we will make it. And we give you thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen.